The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs originally aired on our former host network. We're now a fully independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. This episode is presented by The Brooklyn Kitchen. Learn more at brooklynkitchen.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for... $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love, all for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. Hey, gang, just a reminder, I will be recording a live show at the Food Media Lab at the San Francisco Cooking School on Tuesday June 18th from 7 to 9 p.m. If you're in San Francisco, please join us for my one-on-one conversation with Chef Preeti Mistry and a tribute to the late Judy Rogers of Zuni Cafe featuring five chefs who worked with her. And on Saturday, June 22nd, join me and Chefs David Waltuck and Claudia Fleming for a 1980s dinner at the Chef's Garden in Ohio. For tickets and information on both, click on the bio line at our Instagram feed at, at Chef Podcast or visit the events page on my blog, tokeland.com/slash appearances. I'm Massimo Bottura. Hi, this is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Heritage Radio. I miss the camaraderie, of course. I miss the lack of bullshit, because you can't bullshit in the kitchen. You know, you can't talk about yourself. You can't, you can't inflate yourself, because everyone will know tomorrow. Right. Um, I like living in a, in a pure meritocracy. Yeah. I like that first cold beer after work. I like hanging with cooks and people who work for a living. Yeah. Who prove their metal. Men uh, and women who prove their metal every day, every hour. Yeah. What they say they're going to do a thing, do a thing. Yeah. Or they're not, or they're quickly no longer in your orbit. Right. But I, the work, I had 28 years of it. Yeah. I don't, I don't delude myself into thinking that uh, I'd be useful. Or I'd be a liability. Yeah. Uh, I was in decline already at 44. I mean, Kitchen Confidential was very good timing for me as a right, turned out. Right. Right. Cooking is fucking hard. People just. They pretend to acknowledge, people who don't do it for a living pretend to acknowledge it, Yeah, but they don't know. That is, of course, the late Anthony Bourdain and a conversation from 2014 that we've never shared before 
but are now as we observe and cope with the anniversary of his death on a special episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, and I am here today. You're like our recurring... You're the, you're the, you were to us what Joan Rivers was to the Tonight Show. <laughs> before the falling out. Before yeah. the famous falling out with Johnny Carson. Julia Sexton of Edible Westchester and a, and a writer in her own right. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for joining me for this. This is always fun. Well, yeah, it is always fun. I mean, I thought when I was even saying, like, welcome to the show. Like, this is a grim anniversary, but we've all had a year... I don't think we need to play it up. I mean, we're all still very sad. I think we always will be. But we lost Anthony Bourdain a year ago this week. Um, And I had totally forgotten about it. But I had done, uh, at at the same sit-down over a lunch five years ago, two interviews back-to-back. One was for my, my blog and one was for my book. And... You know, they weren't ever, they were all on the record. Nothing, not one word was off the record. He never said, you can't print what I'm about to tell you. But this was before I'd ever done a podcast. Uh, I was recording with my little lousy Sony reporters, you know, uh, digital recorder, (laughs) you know, set down at the table in a loud restaurant. The audio is not great, but you know. It, he was great. It was a great interview, mainly because of him. I mean, it's almost embarrassing me for me to play it now because I've gotten much better at what I do. Um, you know, I played with the sound, but I just thought, you know, a year later, um, to hear an hour plus with him that people haven't heard, I thought maybe listeners, especially to this show, would, would like to do it. Absolutely. I mean, everything that he said, you know, at this point, now that he's gone, is precious. So, you know. Yeah. And I was I was torn about running it because it technically wasn't an audio interview, and I, you know, I think if uh, the two responses I think he probably would have had were fine or I don't give a shit, do whatever you want with it. Right. Like honestly, I really do believe that. In any event, before we get to that, and and you and I are going to chat a little bit, but I will say, um, I, I have to acknowledge a few things. First of all, we lost Leah Chase over the weekend. Yeah. Uh, a legend. Um, this is a. You know, obviously, I'm sad that we lost her, but I always remembered I had a, my maternal grandfather died, uh, and much younger than I mean, she was almost a hundred. Yeah, she my, was ancient. Yeah, my my maternal grandfather died, and someone in my family at the time referred to it as a tragedy, and I remember my father saying to me, "You know, we're all going to go. Mm-hmm. You get up into your 80s, 90s, like and and go, having led a good life, you know, and done what you set out to do." It's not tragic. I mean, we're going to miss her. I amazingly never got to meet her. But I think it's a moment to just celebrate, reflect on this incredible life. I mean, she got a lot of time on this earth and kind of wrung maximum value out of it. Absolutely. And for people, I I can't get too into it on this show, but, um, you know, if you don't know who Leia Chase is, as I often say with certain legendary figures, you know, get thee to the internet and read up on Leia Chase. She's a major, major figure in American culinary history. Um, You know, on a... Much less significant note in the, in the scheme of things, I was at the last service of Barbudo last week, 
Um, I wrote a piece about it for Salon.com, if, anyone is, if anyone's interested. Um, I need to wish uh, a bon voyage from New York City to my buddy Aaron Bluthorn, who was the chef until Friday night of Cafe Balud. Wow. So the night after my last dinner at Barbudo, I went to my last service <laughs> of Aaron Bluthorn at Cafe Balud. He's moving to Texas, and he'll be announcing his plans there, I think. Um, on a less melancholy note, I was at the fifth anniversary bash for Batard Restaurant. Uh, Marcus Glocker was just on the show a few weeks ago. Right. Uh, Drew Naporin and John Winterman are the front of house or hospitality people behind that. Marcus, of course, is the chef. That was a quite an event. It's been a crazy four or five days. Yeah, you've been busy. I've been busy. Um, and then I was at the Welcome Conference yesterday, the, the conference that the great Will Gadara and Brian Canlis and Anthony Rudolph put I on. I saw that. And that was, as always, I, there's not a lot of calls to action at that conference. There were a few this year. It, I would describe that conference, I think it's intent. I've never discussed this at length with the guys, but I think it's to inspire. Like, I'm not in the front or back of the house as... as uh, Sherry Bayer, who's another host on Heritage, said to me, We're, we live on the side of the house. Uh-huh. Um, we live in the audience. In the <laughs> audience. But but it, it's always an inspirational day. The speakers were incredible. Um, anyway, I, need, I just wanted to mention all of those things before we get to Tony. Um, my, my segue, Julia, and by the way, Julia, as always, is kind of like, you know, I've sent up the bat signal. I think I <laughs> called you at 10 o'clock last night. It was pretty late. Yeah. And I was like... <laughs> I'm editing this show. I want to get it right. I don't know what to say. What I want to say till I edit it. Caitlin has now just like will not do morning interviews because she has to take a six thirty train to work. That's, yeah, that's tough. I don't blame her. That's tough. And I, I called you and said like, ah, help. <laughs> and also, I know Anthony had a very important place in your life and career. Yeah, I was I was on the edge until he said, well, it's 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 about Bourdain, and you know. Okay, well, that's honest. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, because it's so early. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I, I felt li- bad. I still live restaurant hours. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, so here I want to, as a segue, I, I've had a very, um, uh, I don't know what I would call it, emotionally potent, uh, in good and bad ways, in profound ways, a couple of weeks. Um, I've been to a lot of events. Um, I feel like more and more people have found this show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh you know, uh, I was at dinner at the new Maison Yaki, the new restaurant from the Olmstead guys in Brooklyn, and I was eating at a counter, and somebody who I thought was eavesdropping the whole night leans yeah. over finally and says, I- I'm a chef in Pittsburgh, and I recognized your voice. Um, oh, that's fun. Uh, you know, people at the LA Chef Conference kind of knew who I was. It's very weird for me. I'm, I'm always saying all this because it actually ties in with several thoughts I had about Anthony and about what I think had to for him you know, having his big break in, well into his 40s, having struggled with uh, heroin addiction and and not having been a very distinguished chef, which he was no. very honest about. He talks about it in this interview. No, he was a ham and egger. His life, in a surreal way, I think, changed in ways that he rarely let on, but I almost can't imagine it. But here's, here's the note I wanted to read. Um, we got an iTunes review the other day. And I'm not going to say uh, the guy's name because it's, it's a handle. Uh, you know, it's like an, an, an Instagram uh, iTunes handle. But here's the note, and, and it'll be clear why I'm, and this ties into several themes in this interview. I'm a 20-plus year vet of the chef world, and I fall into the many trappings talked about on this show. 
this show being this podcast. Growing up, as many chefs did, with some form of learning disability and not really knowing what it was or why. I myself fell into sports and cooking because that's where I felt I belonged most. They were both an outlet for anger, aggression, and creativity. Yeah. Being dyslexic, I have quite literally never had the ability to sit and read a book like a normal person. Now, whenever someone uses the word normal about others, it makes me very sad. I think that's a failing of our society. There is Um, no normal. There is no normal. The advent of the podcast never really appealed to me at first until I started discovering professional food-based shows. He says some nice stuff about me that I'm not going to read because I'm not trying to be self-promotional. Thanks to the likes of Instagram, we all know a lot about people but don't really know them at all. What Andrew does by diving into so many different chefs' lives makes this show a very special one. It allows you to get to know the people you often hear about better. Now, here's why I'm reading this. But most importantly, for someone like me and many others, it gives us a new avenue to learn beyond having to read, which when we can't do it well. It has also shown many of us that there are some really talented people in our industry that have suffered the same way and have persevered. Yeah. And then he says some other stuff about me that I'm not going to read. Okay, so Tony and I actually, five years ago, sitting at a table at the Breslin restaurant, Mm. you're going to hear it, people are going to hear it in a minute, talked about this. You know, he said that there were a lot of cooks who had come up to him over the years and said they had never read a book since high school, except for Kitchen Confidential. It was hurtful to me in the beginning as a writer, you know, like, what do you mean you didn't read it? Oh, well, I don't read. I, you know. The- yeah, well, that's a thing. Yeah. You know, I remember as a kid being in a store, uh, the local Five and Dime near my home in Coral Gables, Florida. And this older gentleman came up to me and he asked, oh, can you help me? You're about my daughter's age. Can you help me pick out a birthday card for her? And I realized the guy couldn't read. Oh, as I was showing, you know, I realized. And, um... That's not something people want to cop to. And it's not even that they don't can't read words. It's more you, or sometimes it is, but oftentimes you can't string them together. You don't have the attention, literally yeah. don't have the attention, don't span, have the attention span, to, span to sit and focus on more than a paragraph. And, um, and cooking fosters that shortened attention span. Yeah, it works for yeah. people, right? So, But I thought this was a good segue into talking about Anthony Bourdain. Mm-hmm. So why don't you, Julia, you, you used to be a cook. Yep. You are now very successfully a writer. When he died... Uh, last year, I think you tweeted something yeah, to the was, effect of that he showed you that the transition from one to the other was possible. Yeah, you know, he was, you know, as you say, there's no normal. I was a very bookish cook, you know. Yeah. I was a reader, and so was he. Yeah. And um, he showed me that you could come from this kind of sweaty, kind of working class, kind of... Uh, scar-inducing world right. and and write for The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. He wrote for The New Yorker yeah. and he wrote kind of funky little crime novels and he wrote an amazing piece of new journalism which was his Typhoid Mary piece that mm. 
absolutely blew the hat off my head. It was so good. Now, why don't, quickly, why don't you explain? I've actually read that book, but the thesis of that book was what? Because it's the, something the, most, pe- most people just know that name, Typhoid Mary. Right. She was a, a, an Irish-American cook who became notorious for having, she was a carrier of typhoid, never actually had the disease, was merely a carrier. And she was imprisoned on North Brother Island in the East River um, because she refused to not practice her trade. Mm -hmm. Um, So, of course, history has frowned on this woman. Um, Bourdain re-examined her life going to the rocky, cold shores of North Brother Island uh, to look at where they imprisoned her, talked about what life was like for an Irish cook during this time. Yeah, and he said cooks don't miss work, right? That was part of the thesis of the book was that part of the reason this all happened was the ethos of the, the cooking trade. The, the the fucked up ethos in yeah. some ways. I mean, it's great to, 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 you know, Mike Anthony tells a story. It's no secret that he had a, you know, he had a, a, a heart situation years mm. ago and almost died because he had all these uh, uh, signs that something was really bad was happening in his chest. Right. But he wouldn't miss work. Well, he was the chef and he's, oh, his people actually had to say to him, like, you need to go to the hospital. Like he yeah. was clearly in something was wrong. Right. And that saved his life. Right. Right. It's, it's, that's, that's, it's great up to, it's, you know, it's all, it's all very laudable until people start dying, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely true. I think what the big thing with Typhoid Mary was that though, that she was a, what people don't understand is that she was a very skilled cook that worked hard to achieve those skills. He examined the food that she would be serving and also discussed that the only work she was offered after that was to be a laundress. Right. Yeah. Right. So Which speaks was, again to the where the profession right. sort of was in society. This also comes up in this interview that we're about to play. Um, what else for you personally? Like over the years, was it, I mean, it was, it's, it's funny. There's an interview with Jeremiah Tower we're going to run in a few weeks. And spoiler alert, but we, you know, uh, Bourdain produced yeah, yeah, this yeah. movie, The Last Magnificent, about Tony, about uh, Jeremiah. And, uh, you know, I was talking with Jeremiah about Bourdain, who, who Jeremiah knew him a lot better than I ever did. But, you know, I said, you know, it's funny when you see early footage of him, like on a cook's tour, and then you see footage of him, like, uh, you know, in his last years, he, you know, a lot of people physically actually do shrink a little as they get older. He seemed to grow as he got old. His hands look bigger. Yeah. His head looks bigger. And think, and Jeremiah said he seemed a foot taller. Like when you go back and look at a cook's tour, he looks a little, I mean, I'm, I'm just describing it. I don't think he wouldn't care. Again, I don't. Maybe they shot him differently. I think he looked a little runty. He looked too skinny. Like he was always fit, right? But right. he looked too skinny. He he slouched a little. Yeah. He he you know he just looked a little like a little punk you know <laughs> which he kind of was. Yeah. And um, I mean a, a very eloquent one. Yeah. You know, but um, and then by the end he was like this. He became fitter too. I mean, you know. Well, yeah, he was doing the whatever uh, kickboxing or right. martial arts. I don't know exactly what it was, but he he. Yeah, it was crazy. He seemed like to go in the, you know, it was like Benjamin, you know, it was in a way there was this Benjamin Button aspect to how he aged. Right. Yeah. In any event. um, Well, uh, you know, uh, a couple of things I need to say to orient people. One is um, 
this is a two-part interview. Uh, the backstory is I would never have thought to do this, but a, a mutual friend who I, I don't want to name, but somebody who was very instrumental in his publishing life, and I'm very friendly with this person, said to me, why haven't you had an interview with Tony on your blog? And I said, well, I would never ask him to do this blog. I don't even know how many people listen to this show know I have a blog. There's right. good reasons for it. I abandoned it for like months at a time. Um, and she said, no, no, no. And basically she kind of described the dynamic, right? I, she didn't use this term, but it, it was almost like describing that pretty girl that no one wants to ask to the prom. Uh, so they don't, so nobody so does. The pretty yeah. Girl, she's yeah. like, no, you, he would, you should ask him, you know, you guys have met, you guys get along. Uh, so I, I wrote him a note and like in two seconds he had copied Lori Wooliver, who most people know was his longtime so aide de camp. We made an appointment to get together and, um, so, so one part of the interview is was for the blog, and I did run part of it, uh, just a fraction in print. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part was I was working on my book, Chef Drugs and Rock and Roll, at the time. He was around at that time, but he was really on the edges. And this yeah. again comes up; it gets a little awkward in the interview because I'm asking him about people like Jonathan Waxman and Alfred Portali right. and Man Rose and. He didn't really know any of those people. He wasn't in their circle. They didn't know who he was. He mentions he went to Blue Ribbon in the early days when it was a chef hangout. Right. And he never got asked to any of like the cool tables. <laughs> uh, it's kind of amazing where he ended up. But you that's, know? that's sort of where his humanity came from was that he wasn't the cool guy or you know he wasn't exactly the celebrity chef. He had a much more um, gimlet-eyed view of that world. Yeah, it's fascinating. And and I don't think he ever forgot, you know, there was an yeah, article in Publishers Weekly years ago did a piece about why does every book seem to have a foreword by Anthony Bourdain? And he said, look, I was a starving writer at one point, yeah. and I remember what that's like. So when people, it's kind of the way cooks are or chefs are with each other. It was kind of like we chef. Yeah. You know, if a writer asked him for a foreword or advice he gave it. Yeah. You know, and honestly, he did that with me. I always point out we never, we didn't go out to dinner. He wasn't like my buddy. Mm. If I needed something, he would respond and help me, you know. I thought that was very special at the time. But, like, you know, after he died, there were all these stories of people most you know, no one's ever heard of. Oh, yeah. And he did that for a lot of people. It, a- it's kind of astonishing. His assistant wrote this, Lori. Yeah, Lori wrote this yeah. amazing thing about how, uh, you know, most of these assistant stories are about being abused by your boss. Yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, she was treated wonderfully. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. And she's great. Um, and uh, I think that's on CNN.com. I think it was. I don't know. I've read the piece. And yeah. I, was, I think she wrote it for CNN.com. I always thought. But... Um, you always thought. I always thought that that's how you tell the the true nobility of a person is you know how they treat the people who are you know less who can't elite. fight back. Yeah, who can't fight back. I just said this in an interview yeah. yesterday at the welcome conference. Kat Kinsman yeah. was interviewing people, and she's we were talking. She said, "What what's the responsibility of a restaurant customer?" And I said, "You know, to not be an asshole, basically. Yeah. Like you're not, you know, fundamental decency. You don't decency. Have to, you don't have to yeah, get, you don't have to get crazy. Yeah, but I made the point. I said, you know, nothing will turn me off to a person almost irreparably than people who talk or who treat people who can't push back. Oh, it's 
That's so true. Waiters. I have fired friends for for bad restaurant behavior. Fired friends, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, you suddenly you realize, God, this person's an asshole. You know, if you, you know, <laughs> to, 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 to antagonize yeah. the defenseless. Or shame. Or, yeah, it's yeah. just to me the lowest thing you can do. 100%. It's, it's horrible. Um, this again, he, I think he never let go of knowing what, knowing what, knowing what it felt like to be on the edges, you know, or to need help. Um, you know, the fact that he, so here's the thing, uh, I spoke to, I mean, this is on her show also, but I had this revelation recently and I talked about this at the beginning of the show and I read that review. I have had this little, I don't know, this new, there's a, there's this new dimension of my life which is more people know who I am and what I do mm-hmm. I have cooks coming to me a lot for advice um, which is an honor it's hard to give to be there for people you know I want to give people attention I want to meet them for a coffee yeah. I want to talk to them on yeah, the phone yeah, yeah. there's people who I've gone from messaging on Instagram there's a listener out there named Rob Rob I don't want to say your last name but yeah. you know who you are we've moved it over to texting you know but I still haven't gotten on the phone with this guy I yeah. will okay Tony was world freaking famous, and yet he would do this for people and just pick up the phone. Well, I don't know how often he picked up the phone, but I, as far as I can tell, he would respond to people. Someone told a story. I forget. It was right after the, all these stories that came out where he yeah. had scribbled his phone number like on their notebook or something and said, Amazing. "Get in touch. Let's do this thing." Um, yeah, such humility. But you know. I don't know how he had enough of himself to do that well maybe he ran out you know <laughs> yeah i don't know I, I i don't think and i don't think most of us know the what really happened no. there but um i mean i'm not saying it wasn't a suicide but i i'm not i don't know what the context mm. was i don't know how long suffering no. he was i think Nobody a lot does. of people who really don't know were making a lot of assumptive leaps at the time yeah but i can't imagine how he how he managed to give as much as he gave to people. And I will tell you, there's a moment, they did a Parts Unknown about his impact. And there's a moment late at night where he, I don't even know where it was because it was a montage show, you know, of clips from all these. Yep. And he goes up to some late night outside bar somewhere and just walks up. And this is Tony Bourdain, right? <laughs> and he's like, and there's some chef cooks there and he's like, gentlemen? And like, you felt like that's probably exactly how he's, sidled up to a table like that when no one knew who he was, right? right? It just fit right in. But he still had that um, affection for colleagues. What he yeah. thought of was still colleagues of the kitchen, right? And he never got too big for that, you know? Yeah. So anyway. That's laudable. To all you listeners out there, you know, again, I wrestled with airing this. I don't want it to seem like self-promotional, you know? Um I, I, you know, for the record, I mentioned my book. It, it comes up in in passing as I'm asking him questions in the second half of this show. Don't go buy my book this week. Buy mm. Typhoid Mary or buy one of Tony's. Buy Medium Raw if you never read that. Or, or honestly, I don't know that you should pick up one of his novels. They weren't <laughs> they weren't that great. There's a reason that they, those came before. <laughs> he got were, he were, got published before Kitchen Confidential. Yeah, and nobody knew it. I, I I'm not. I, maybe don't ju- pick those up. If you're obsessive, there is juvenilia. You know. It's, yeah, if you're a yeah. completist. Yeah, yeah, yeah I you're am. A completist. So I read them all. Yes, but you know, just for the record, I'm not pushing my own thing. Go buy a Tony Bourdain book this week. Typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary is a scholarly work. Oh, I love it so much. That's entertaining. Yep. Yeah. It's a profound work of new journalism. That's well put. Okay, a couple of things I need to say. Um, when this, so we sat down, 
for this interview, April 29, 2014. That's just a little over five years ago. It feels much longer. We had lunch at the Breslin. He very kindly, and I told this story last year, and incidentally, episode 35 of this series, the day the news broke about Tony, I uh, spontaneously sat down with Bill Telepan in his kitchen, mm. and we talked for half an hour. If you want to go through the archives of this show, uh, you can listen to that. It's very raw. We didn't edit it. There's no music or anything. We just literally recorded it, and I sent it from the rest, his restaurant to the station, or to Heritage, and they threw it up on air. But if you want to hear some thoughts on that day, that's available for your consumption. Um, but uh, we had just watched the movie Chef together because he had a friendship with Roy Choi, who had, right. who had consulted on that movie. Right. Um, and we had watched it in the screening room at 0.0. And then we went to the Breslin and we did this interview. Again, it's two parts. Uh, just to orient you, Tony was already doing Parts Unknown. He uh, had just aired that week an episode where he had gone to Lyon with Daniel Baloud, who's from Lyon. They had spent time with Paul Bocuse, which was a very... Um, uh, momentous occasion in Tony's life. We, right. So I, we talk, I'm bringing this up because we talk about all these things in the interview. Um, and uh, he alludes to some friends uh, by the first name. I don't think he ever mentions last names, but Eric is obviously Eric Repair, who was his best friend. The Ripper. Jose is Jose Andres, who no, needs no introduction. Amazingly, and Julia, this is the second time it's come up when you have been with me. He refers to Mario... Yeah. That is Mario Batali. As you and I have said here before, let let us not judge people who were in the presence of Mario Batali years ago because most people of Tony's generation were. Yeah. If you were in that generation in New York, you spent time with Mario socially. So, um and and Tony said things after the fact. That's not what this show is about, but when he refers to Mario, that's who Mario is. Um uh, I think uh, I think he, there's a passing reference made to the market project. That, of course, was what was supposed to be the Bourdain market. Right. Uh, as I say that, I might have edited it out, but I'm not sure. Anyway, if if if, if there's a reference to the market, that's what that was. And um, I don't know. I think that's all I need to say about all this. The one other thing I will say is I, I said it at the beginning. Um, it was humbling for me to listen to this, first of all, because, again, you know, he gave me 90 minutes of his life, you know, which I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it came from. Um, I don't know how he had it to give. Uh, I, I don't think my interviewing skills are on particularly good display here, but that's... Well, you were I don't, interviewing for print. It was for print, right. Yeah, yeah I was never thinking this was going to air. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and the other thing about it, I will say, is that, you know, I just listened to Mark Maron the other day interview David Letterman. Mm -hmm. And we talk in this interview, I talk with Tony about, you know, we were talking about Bocuse, and we, I say, well, you know, I, don't, I won't give the answers in right now, but you'll hear them. You know, who, who else for you would be in that realm of Paul Bocuse? You know, who would be, right. like, just hard for you to be cool around? And he had a list, you know? Even Tony Bourdain had a list. That's so funny. Um, but for me... In the culinary industry, there was only one person who occupied that place for me, who in my, even in my 40s made me feel like a little starstruck, you know, kid. Who and was, it, 
It was Tony Bourdain. Me too. Is the only? Did you ever meet him? Yes. Did you tell him what he meant to you? I did. It, what it did was he say? Awful. It was a total cringe. Um, I I handed him my book to sign, yeah. and he was with Fergus Henderson. Oh, jeez. And yeah, and I was pretty much a liquid substance at that point. I don't remember, yeah. and I think I just blathered on about. God knows, I'm I'm cringing at the thought. But he took time to like ten minutes to make this drawing of a knife, um, and it said "Cook free or die," and had dripping off it. It went on. Yes. And, this yeah. drawing went on and on. Yes, that's yeah, and, the knife. And Fergus Henderson was sort of rolling his eyes that this was taking so long, but he was very kind. Yeah, he was a he was really he was. But yeah, that was the only guy that made me, uh, he was the only person that I, I really sort of choked up around. Yeah. I mean, I, I was very nervous with him, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, I think, because I have peers who were, you know, really got to know him and they yeah. talked, they talked to him on the phone and went, I just think I could never get past what he meant to me. And I, yeah. I actually think that was, I don't want to use the word fault, but I think I created a dynamic that made that impossible. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, and, and walked, I don't, I wouldn't blame him with that. Yeah, I think he got it, and I just don't think that's the kind of person he wanted to like he, he have a beer of- with. But I think if I had been a little more confident and a little less whatever, that I probably would have gotten to know him better. But that's fine. He was he was amazing, and okay, this is a very long intro, but I think it's appropriate. And um, with that, guys, I hope I've said everything I need to say to orient you in time and space to where we were when this happened. But this was my interview, part one of it, with the late, amazing Anthony Bourdain, recorded April 29th, 2014, at the Breslin Restaurant, over lunch and a couple of beers. Here you go. You write, you've got the show, you've got um, an imprint. This all started with a New Yorker article yeah. and a book. Yeah. When you think back to, you know, the article, book, things kind of snowballing, what was the tipping point for you when you really started to understand that you were kind Something of... Something was happening, gonna, That it was turning into, your life was transforming into what it's become. About six months after it happened. I mean, uh, I guess I assumed I was on the bestseller list. Uh, I signed for the, the television, the book and the television series, The Cook's Tour. Um, people were calling me and offering me all sorts of wonderful things. But I had, I was still very much um, working under the assumption that it's all bullshit and it will all vaporize and that I should keep my day job. So I was when still you say working. You you mean you didn't trust it? I didn't trust people it. people were pushing No, I just, I didn't trust it. Uh, Seems too true? It, yes. Well, I still kind of believe that. But but I, 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 I thought it could all, as these things do, yeah. when you're talking to television or movie people, for instance, yeah. you know, these things t- tend to vaporize. Yeah. Uh, I knew enough by then. I was 44. Uh, I assume, and who... who who believes that you can make a living writing? Right. You know, that's a, already, that's a... Yeah. You know, I spent my life with waiters who wanted to be writers or wanted to be actors. Sure. Uh, 
So I, I just, I, I very much felt that this is all great. Yes. I'm going to make the most of it while I can, but yeah. I'm not going to be so foolish as to think that I should quit my job. Right. I finally had a job that I was good at. Right. Where I was appreciated, and we were actually a successful restaurant, yeah. which was just about a first for me in my entire 30-year career. Yeah. Leal was really the first time that I was working for a restaurant that was busy before me, busy during me, and, and and would be busy after me. Yeah. Uh, and I was very aware of that. I was on a good thing. I was happy. Yeah. So um, it took me about six months. And then from that point, from that point on, uh, I have been careful. I've been very careful. Uh, I, I, on one hand, have tried to make the most of it, yeah. of my opportunities, but I've been very careful about what I say yes to and what I say no to. Yeah. And... I, I think seriously always about, look, this may be a good idea right now, or it may be a lot of money right now, but will it be good for me five years from now? Right. Will it be fun? Will it make me hate myself? Will I? Uh, I think about all of those things. Can I ask you? You may, if you, if you rather I didn't bring it up, just tell me. No, that I didn't is ask fine. you. But you know, um, I first met you when we were promoting "Don't Try This at Home." Yeah. And we all went to dinner at Lupa. Yeah. And at that time, the Kitchen Confidential TV show with Bradley Cooper. Yeah. Was on, and my wife said to you, "What's your involvement with the show?" And you laughed and said, "When they air one, they send me a check." Yeah. But I sort of privately have always thought that there, you actually, it, it seemed to me from the timing of it that you actually maybe took something out of that, that you became more careful no, about I, what your name I knew was beforehand. Uh, no, no, I knew beforehand. Uh, they were paying me as a consultant, I think largely when they do that. Yeah. They don't really want you to consult. They want to pay you to not badmouth your own project. Right. I had very, le very low, remember that project was sold initially to be a David Fincher film with Brad Pitt. <laughs> I had that to ask you. I remember that. So, but I had low... Was it the same producers who took it over to television? No. no. Uh, look, I had low expectations when I sold the thing. Yeah. Uh, it was not an unpleasant experience working with Darren Starr. Yeah. To the extent that I did, which was, I think we had lunch yeah. once. Yeah. Uh, went out to the studio. I never saw the... Yeah, I saw the set before they actually showed yeah. up, but I never was on set or anything yeah. like that. I had low expectations. I mean, you sell your baby to Hollywood, uh, yeah. you get, you know, you get what everybody gets. Yeah. You know, right? Um, I got out easy. Uh, I didn't right. because I had no expectations. Uh, I wasn't brokenhearted when it turned into something else. I mean, yeah. it was a half-hour sitcom on Fox. What the fuck do I expect? Right, right. You know, and in retrospect, it's something of a historical curiosity. You know, I haven't seen it in many years, but. Right. Uh, you know, I wasn't. I didn't go hide in a closet when it came out. Sure. I just, when I looked at it, I, I, I didn't think that's me. I never yeah. expected it. What did they do to my book? It wasn't yeah. my book. The minute I sold it to Hollywood, it's not my book. So, yeah, it was, a, it was not an unpleasant experience, and it, it didn't scar me or mark me in any right. way. Uh, my attitude towards these things uh, was reasonably healthy before that experience, yeah. and remains that way. I, I'm, I'm a. 
I, I, I have a pretty good idea of how these things work. Yeah. When you um, when you first when you were writing Kitchen Confidential, what was your what was your, sorry, what was your ambition for that book? Was it just to write? I wanted book? my I wanted my the guys in my kitchen and a bunch of other kitchens in New York to find it funny. Yeah. And to say that's not bullshit. Well, that's that's like our life. That's right. this guy. You know, he's one of us. That's yeah. it. It was it. I wrote it for the New York Press, essentially, the paper, the New York Press. I wrote that first article, and I expanded on it for the book. Yeah. I really, really, really didn't think that, it, I didn't understand or see any reason for anyone as far west as Philadelphia to read it. Right. Uh, so it all came as a surprise to me. I mean, it's in like 30 languages. Yeah. It was very quickly in that many languages. I had no clue. I, I, I mean, it's, it's so New York-centric, you know, the... The whole fish on Monday, the whole, all of these rules were very much, you know, 1998 New York. Yeah. I, I didn't see how any of that would translate. I never thought for a minute. I never, never for a second considered what people might want out of a book. Yeah. Or what they might expect, or whether this would translate to, yeah. to another city. Right. I just didn't think about those things. I, here, I was given an opportunity to, I wrote an article wanting to sell it for $100 to the New York Press. It ended up in the New Yorker. I got offered a book on the basis of that, so I yeah. just did more of that. Yeah. Because it seemed to work and it was fun. Right. Um, I, I just, I had the luxury of not having any idea what was expected or understanding sure. of it or even thank you I would have been paralyzed with fear and, yeah. and uh, uncertainty if I'd had any clue what what the reading public wanted yeah I wouldn't have known what to do uh, was there it seemed to me I mean I remember very well when that book came out um you know, it's, it's funny. I actually, for me, I, I kind of make a connection to what White Heat was, you know, in that it was showing, what, you know, a lot of times when you would read about chefs or read cookbooks, there was this sort of idealized um, uh, presentation of the, the life. Like the kitchen, the professional kitchen almost went away. You never really read about it. Right. I felt like the photographs of White Heat were important in that respect. And I feel like your book was sort of the prose equivalent of that. Did, did, did you connect... I looked at White Heat was I wanted to be that guy we all did we saw Marco leaning against the wall smoking a cigarette we all connected with that my god it's a chef at a cookbook smoking a cigarette he's gaunt and scraggly yeah. and dirty and, and, and stressed like we are it's yeah. finally finally a chef who looks like us there's hope I mean I, I wanted to connect I wanted the reader the reader, who I envisioned as a cook, yeah. to feel that same sense of connection as I felt when I saw the pictures in White Heat. But it was a book with totally. It was a book written without guile. I was fucking clueless. I mean, I didn't. I, I didn't have time. I didn't have the luxury. I, I mean, I woke up at, at 5.30 in the morning and would light a cigarette before I brushed my teeth even, and I'd write for a couple of hours, and then I'd look at the clock and realize I had to be in, and I'd go. Yeah. I didn't have time. To, it was right. a bit written very quickly. Uh, 
I was thinking about uh, Down and Out in uh, London and Paris. Yeah. And how that book made me feel when Which I read book? it. Down and Out in Paris uh-huh. and London. Yeah. And White Heat, how that made me feel when I saw it as a cook. Yeah. That's all I was, I was looking for that response from cooks. Yeah. That, that was as far as yep. it went with me when I wrote the book. Yep. Cooking's really hard work, professional cooking. Um, uh, obviously, at some age, it starts to become uh, taxing physically. But do you miss? Do you miss being on the line? Do you miss being in a kitchen? I miss the camaraderie, of course. I miss the lack of bullshit because you can't bullshit in the kitchen. You know, you can't talk about yourself. You can't inflate yourself because everyone will know tomorrow. Right. Um, I like living in a in a pure meritocracy. Yeah. Um, I like that first cold beer after work. I like hanging with cooks and people who work for a living. Yeah. Who prove their metal. Men and women who prove their mettle every day, every hour. Yeah. What they say they're going to do a thing, do a thing. Yeah. Or they're not, or they're quickly no longer in your orbit. Right. But I, the work, I had 28 years of it. Yeah. I don't, I don't delude myself into thinking that uh, I'd be useful. Or I'd be a liability. Yeah. I was in decline already at 44. I mean, Kitchen Confidential was very good timing for me as a right, turnout. Right, right, Cooking is fucking hard. People just, they pretend to acknowledge, people who don't do it for a living pretend to acknowledge it. Yeah. But they don't know. They don't know how hard it actually is. Because we're, we're not talking about a hard thing. We're talking about a hard thing every day the same. And that is difficult indeed. The monotony of the actual it's, no, it's just the, the pressure of doing the same job just as fast and just as well. Yeah. To the same standards and identically looking and tasting identical. Yeah. And get it again and again with no variance. Yeah. That's hard. There was this line, I forget if it's in the introduction or very, it must be in the forward of the introduction. In Kitchen Confidential, there's some line, you were transitioning or into a time, I guess, of being both a, a chef and a writer. And you, there was a line you had, if my car breaks down at 3 o'clock in the morning in a bad neighborhood, I'm calling a chef, I'm calling a cook, I'm not calling a writer. Yeah. Is that kind of what, what you just said, I assume is kind of the long version of what you meant by that. Yeah, I mean... If you're on a lifeboat, I mean, who do you want to be stuck on a desert island with, a cook yeah. or a writer? Totally different question. Yeah. Um, what's the most surprising place that you've ever been recognized? Uh, wow. Uh, look, uh, the show's seen everywhere now. So, uh, Borneo. Uh, uh, the question is actually, look, there's always going to be. If nothing else, there'll always be somebody from another country, whether they're, you know, whether it's a Singapore, I could be in rural China, but a Singaporean or Malaysian tourist will recognize me. No, it's more, you know, where were there like crazy fans? Like Paraguay, I was like. Crazy you know, fans to find how? Like enthusiastic fans are sitting in a lobby of my house, somehow found out what hotel I'm staying at, or sitting there like for six hours out. waiting for me to wake up, you know? Wanted what from you? A picture, an autograph, picture, uh, to hang out? Picture, just a picture. Just a picture. Does that blow your mind? It's weird. 
I mean, it's strange. It feels odd. It's not. It's it's a jarring difference between the way I used to live and the way I live now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't feel puffed up by it or freaked out by it or annoyed by it. I mean, unless I'm running for, you know, I'm running for the bathroom in between flights. It's a little annoying, but right. It's easier than filling up the steam table at a shitty restaurant you don't like. Right. In the morning, knowing you're about to cook food that you hate for people you hate. Right. Brunch is hard. You know, posing for selfies in Paraguay in a lobby. Right. Not so hard. You know, I was watching that episode the other night, and the way you were talking about Bocuse really struck me. I mean, uh, you were clearly very humbled to be well, his, struggling to not be presence. Yeah. Look, I never, I don't stress enough, I never in my life ever thought, for most of my life, I never thought ever would I eat at Bocuse. Much less sit with him. Yeah. Much less hang out, go hunting, yeah. hang at his lodge with yeah. his, him and his mistress. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Day one, I met his wife. Day two, I'm hanging out with him and his mistress. Yeah. I never, I mean, I'm a, a I am utterly, you know, you can see, I was like a, I had the vapors. Yeah. I was like a, uh, it was total uh, in the presence of a, of a, of a, a lifelong hero yeah. of mine. Very, very aware of it. Very nervous yeah. and excited and emotional and grateful and, you know, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Couldn't believe it. Still can't believe it. I look, I, I look back on it I can't believe it. Who else would be in a similar territory for you? Whether it's a chef or a writer or, I mean, who would be, who would be hard for you to kind of be cool around? Oh, Keith Richards? Have you met him? No. Um... Keith Richards, for sure. Bill Murray was on the show. Yeah. But it's like it happened in a fugue state, you know, like still. Right. My voice gets all high and squeaky and weird. Yeah. Um, Iggy. That show you just mentioned, hanging out with Bocuse and his, you know, those farmers and the guys he was hanging out with, which was kind of a, yeah, it was a place for him to be where kind of his celebrity became. Yeah, they don't call him Monsieur Paul, right. you know, he's the neighbor. Do you have a group like that? I mean, you don't no. have to name names. You don't have, like... Well, this is the reason why hanging out with chefs and cooks is uh, more comfortable than hanging out with writers. Uh, there's no sense of anything outside of the moment. I mean, I'm, I feel very comfortable hanging out with even chefs who I don't see often. Yeah. I mean, you know, Eric is, you know, my closest friend. You know, I probably see him more often yeah. than any other friend. Right. In fact, I'm sure I do. Yeah. Uh, Jose. Yeah. Um, but I travel 250 days a year. Yeah. Um, you know, there are chef friends who I only see every couple of years. Yeah. Uh, but I'm always moving. Yeah. Uh, I, I, by conventional standards, I'm a bad friend. You know, I'm not right. there. I'm not there to remember your birthday right. or to offer you words of support that I'm unaware of through Twitter. Right. Uh, I'm not up on what's ha- what you're doing in New York because I'm not in New York. Right. Um, I, I, I'm just I'm not what would they call it in, in parenting circles present. Yeah. Um, you know, which is. 
you know, I guess it's a coincidence that, you know, I get along so well with uh, Eric and Jose. We're both sort of, you know, half in, half out of the public eye. Yeah. And traveling a lot. Sure. And so it's like I'm not offended if I call Jose and he doesn't call me back for a few days. Or Eric, because I, you know, you I understand. It. I yeah. get it. You know, that's, yeah. this is the way we right. live now. But, you know, if I want to get together for drinks with my closest friends, you know, my assistant calls their assistant because that's the most efficient way to yeah, do it sure. and most respectful way as yeah, well. Sure. Uh, it's a very weird, freakish uh, situation a lot of us find ourselves in. And, uh, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Uh, but no, I don't have a, uh, I don't have a country place. I don't club, have a men's club. I don't, you don't have, have a, like you don't have don't that have group a, picking I don't, together. I don't every have an organized anything. Yeah. I yeah. mean, no, I, I don't have bowling buddies or yeah. anything resembling that. Right. A regular card game or a regular anything because yeah. I wouldn't be there for most of those regular. Right, There's right, no right. regularity to my schedule. Yeah. In any regularity to my schedule, you know, my first first fucking priority is always going to be, you know, I'm spending that time with my daughter. I'm just wondering if you've been hearing this. It's something I hear a lot, and I just wanted your comment on it. I am. I'm amazed at how often um, lately when I've been talking to cooks and uh, chefs but even young chefs even guys who are just in their 30s you know like I'm doing a book with the guys from Battersby in Brooklyn Um, and you know even they and they're you know covered in tattoos and on their phone all the time they look for all the world like very casual young cooks they would be very serious about what they do but New York LA San Francisco I've heard this time and time again that there seems to be less of an less of an of let's call it sort of a you know a, an honor code among in the kitchen like the way people the way people leave jobs the way people don't show up all of a sudden the way have you been hearing have you heard this from people it seems I like hear chefs complaining thing. about it like people quitting yeah. by text an hour before their shift yeah. and they say this would never happen in the old days but then you'll hear a 30 year old tell you the same thing it happened in the old days too yeah Are, are the kids today, you know, these kids today, I don't know. They're, they're, to me, the amount of goose, there have always been a certain proportion of people who think they're going to be great in the restaurant business and think they're going to do great in the kitchen, yeah. but end up washing out. Yeah. I think that number stays pretty con- pretty constant throughout like the last few centuries. Yeah. I think there's a hardcore kernel of people, a yeah. definite minority, who at the end of the day were were designed or shaped or just are right. Yeah. You know, to find a home in a, in a restaurant business. Right. Others, for one reason or another, will either wash out quickly or wash out over time or be found out. Yeah. To be just not to not have it. Yeah. Uh, are there more of them now? I think maybe it's the same assholes, they're just different assholes. They, maybe they come in talking a lot of shit about how they want to end up with a TV show. Instead of, you know, maybe 30 years ago, they would have come in saying some other shit. Right. Their aspirations may be different. Right. But they're the same goofs, and they fail for the same reason. Yeah. Which is, generally, the inability to show up on time and do what you said you were going to do yesterday. Right. 
It's a character issue. Thank you. you know. So how it's manifested doesn't really... Yeah. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Um, can I ask you about a couple of third rail topics? Yeah. Um, it's Beard Awards season. Yeah. You went off on the Beard Awards a couple yeah. of years ago. Called it a goat rodeo. Yeah. You said it doesn't recognize the... Um, Minority population, and I think you said it was the backbone, backbone, heart and lungs yeah. of the industry. Mexicans don't exist to them, except as a theme for their multicultural, you know, whatever it was a few years ago. They, they, right. they played mariachi music over right. there, as usual. Look, here's why the Beard Awards are good because chefs truly deserve, chefs who work hard all year, yeah. who give their, 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 their heart, their blood, their soul, their sweat, their job. You should be able to dress up in tuxedos once a year and get a statue and then go out and have a big party. All in the same city. Yes. Yeah. And it's nice that their crews, the people who work for these chefs, if those chefs, if their chef wins a beard award, that they can go home feeling like, wow, all of our work meant something. Look, we won a beard award. Right. That's about it. It is a fundamentally, fundamentally bullshit organization. The most outrageous example being, look, James Beard was, I mean, look, it's perfect choice. An unpleasant, entitled snob. Why do you need a James Beard house? A, a shrine. This is a, it, it's a perfect example. They're in the business of perpetuating their own importance and mm -hmm. keeping themselves on salary and at the center of any discussion about food. In every other way outside of those awards, they are fucking useless. Go to the James Beard house. It is a non-functioning kitchen, a non-functioning dining area, there, there, you know, a space. Yeah. Uh, attended by nobodies, people with zero influence in food, zero awareness of what's going on in food. Yeah. Uh, it is a private the dining society of fucking golfers. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it is a predatory organization, is my way of thinking. That in so. no way... Because they call up, you know, you're the best restaurant in Cincinnati. You're just starting to get up on your feet, right? Yeah. You haven't, you haven't, you know, you're not out of the red yet. James Beard Awards call up. Oh, we'd really like you to do a, a dinner at the, at the James Beard house. We're not paying for the food. Right. We're not paying for the staff. We're not paying a peak to staff or, or your restaurant while you and your whole staff are gone. We're not even providing you a suitable place to cook the fucking food. Right. We're giving you the honor of giving us a bunch of you sweat off your brow, a bunch of free fucking labor, uh, uh, food, air travel, lodging, all the rest to cook for a bunch of nobodies who will help you in no way under the implied promise that if you do this for us, you got a shot at getting the award. It's not explicitly stated, it's right. not necessarily implied, but that's what everybody's afraid of. Right. Okay? You know, I never forget my friends from Australia, you know, took that long flight going upstairs to finally see who was in the dining room, what this had all been about. Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars cost them to do this thing. Yeah. Hey chef, how come you didn't serve any koala, you know? I mean, the, the award ceremony, you know, make sure to hold it in the one place in New York that has zero cooking facilities. Um, 
shit, you know, the, 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 the tasting, I mean, they're getting free food and right. work off people in return for nothing. Right. For nothing. What? Honoring people who deserve to be honored? Recognizing people who deserve to be honored? How about like a reading room? How about some, how about, you know, what they give you? Look at their books that I do every year. It's a pretty lamentable uh, spread of money. They take in a whole lot of money and very little goes out or back to anything useful. This business they claim to love, you know, look, at least a fund for, uh, instead of creating new awards to throw more dinners, how about a fucking fund or a fundraiser to provide uh, paralegals for this huge plurality of, of uh, Central American and Mexican workers who make up this business they claim to love and honor. How about that? How about coming out publicly and spending some money advocating for, uh, for uh, uh, modification of our immigration laws? No. These are hideous. You know, it's everything that's wrong with, with dynamics. You know, entitled, otherwise unemployable people. They're they're golfers. Are there any awards out there or, or honors that you think are that you admire that you think are in the you know in the, in the industry? There, there should be. But you, you know, professional. No, no. I mean, like the short answer is no. Yeah. But I mean, if if, if 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 chefs voted like producers guild or something like that, if professionals voted, truly voted for professionals, only in those categories that they were knowledgeable of. Meaning, okay, I haven't been a, you know, I haven't been in Seattle, but I know who the big dog is. Ooh, I recognize his name. I'll vote for him. Right. Meaning, if people. From specific areas voted for within only industry people. Mm -hmm. You know that would be nice. But you know, look, we're not a, you know chefs are not a not the sort of people that get organized. Um, right, they're anti-organization. Look, I totally get. I'm so happy when I hear friends of mine get the beer award because I know they're happy. Right, it's a good party and their kitchen staffs appreciate yeah. it. I don't know if it's realistic to hope for a better, for an alternative, because whoever it is mm -hmm. who starts it up, again, it's going to be more of the same, you know, there's certain people who call up and ask chefs for things. Right. It's something of an industry. People who call up, you know, chefs are already so generous, uh, so, so, so involved. It, generally speaking, the first people you want to call for, you know, a charity or a food bank. But on top of that, it's all oh, you know, taste of taste of Chelsea or or uh, you know, the magazines are fucking brutal. Every magazine has its own little festival, you know. Put it this way: if it, it's a trash hauling outfit. The recycling outfit from Staten Island did half the shit that these people calling chefs do regularly. You know, <laughs> it would be an indictable offense. <laughs> I'm in a gourmet institute. You know, <laughs> come on. Right. What the fuck is that? 
this topic that's been out, I mean, it's been out, I don't know, I feel like it's been out there again a little bit recently, or to me it's just kind of the current world order. But this idea of how important, I don't, did you see the, I don't, did you see the Times Magazine a couple weeks back, the food and drink issue? Uh, which article? It had, well, the Bittman piece about chefs, you know, being out of the kitchen. Was he for or against? Well, he was kind of... Half of it was just a memory piece about what it used to be like to go eat John George's Was it his memories or was someone else was working for him? I never read Bittman because I'm not even sure it's him. He was talking about the, um, you know, the hate, sometimes basically the 80s, you know, early 90s when everyone had one restaurant and they were there and whether or not something's been lost and, bull- and that not being the case. It's a bullshit issue raised by board, but I'll paid by the word writers who, who need to file a couple of thousand words on absolute bullshit. Because every single one of them fucking knows that the entire chef business revolves around the guiding principle that the chef should have be able to have Sunday off with their food exactly the same as every other day of the week. They understand. It is a completely disingenuous discussion. Right. Okay? Some people can take Sunday off without a diminution of quality. Yeah. Others can. Some chefs can open many restaurants without a diminution of quality. Others clearly can. There's nothing new about that. There's nothing worth fucking discussing. This whole notion that Jean Georges should pop up smiling at my elbow every time I go in is bullshit. Whether I'm Mark Bittman or anybody else. I, I don't even, I'm pissed about it. I don't even know what we're fucking talking about. But you've heard this topic, right? Yes. And it's, it's, it's stupid. It's well, my favorite line was you It's hear- pretending that we don't know what we know. Which is, Jean-Georges hasn't touched a fucking salad in 30 years, and we shouldn't expect him to. He's great, and we know his name for reasons other than his magical way with the salad. Right. There was a, um, you know, you're, there's this great Alan, Alan Syak line that he used to come to the dining room of Lesserc, and customers would say, who's cooking my food while you're out here? Right. And he said the same people that cook it when I'm in the kitchen. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, um, it, it just, what is Mario's particular genius, okay? Mario's particular genius is not cooking pasta, right? It's been a fuck of a long time since Mario Batali cooked anybody's pasta. Mario Batali's particular genius is having spectacular good taste, in, or, or uh, he's a spectacularly good judge of character and ability. Mm-hmm. He chooses very interesting partners, creative yeah. partners, who, who offer something to him and to the world. That's one of the things he's very, very good at. I go to a Mario Batali restaurant, the last thing in the world I want or expect is Mario to be cooking my pasta. Anybody who suggests that it's not as good as when he was cooking your pasta have already proven themselves to be, you know, idiots. It's an unforgivable offense in food writing as far as I'm concerned. Even be having the discussion. It's stupid beyond words. Chef means chief. Right. Leader. By the time you got to know these chefs' names, they they had been cooking themselves in quite some time. Right. That's why you know their names. Mm-hmm. 
because they're good leaders. I'm, when we're talking about these issues, and you're just giving me your straight opinion, mm-hmm. is that anything that's hard for you? I assume that's not hard for you to do. Why? Give you my straight well, it's opinion? very hard. As someone, I mean, I interview a lot of people. It's very hard to get just a straight, honest opinion. Well, people are going to say, oh, he's mean. <laughs> you know? Right. Or he's full of shit, or he doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't care. Yeah. I mean, sometimes all of those things are true. This episode is presented by The Brooklyn Kitchen a recreational cooking school on a mission to change the world by teaching people how to cook like grown-ups. The Brooklyn Kitchen began in 2006 when two creative home chefs, Taylor Erkinen and Harry Rosenblum, recognized an opportunity to create a community space with approachable, hands-on cooking classes and inventive culinary experiences. Taylor and Harry believe that cooking is a daily practice in creative problem-solving. They bring this ethos to the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking school that fosters community, and redefines home cooking for everyone. Now located at Sunset Park's Industry City, the Brooklyn Kitchen hosts a range of public and private cooking classes, corporate team parties, pop-up dinners, and tasting events for cooks of all levels. Learn more at thebrooklynkitchen.com. Hey, are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Kathy Array, and I'm the host of Eat Your Words here on HRN. Every week I sit down with food writers to talk about their newest work, from colorful cookbooks to food memoirs to exposés on the food industry. It's all meaty topic for discussion. You can find Eat Your Words wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to the show. We are going to return you now to the rest of the interview with Anthony Bourdain without delay. <laughs> We're not going to go on and on and on about it. You know what's funny about the intro to the show, though, Julia? Right before we started, I said, can we both please be mindful that people just want to hear the interview and let's not go into a Tony yeah. Bourdain rabbit hole and then we talk for almost half an hour. Uh-oh. Um, but you know what? I I think I think it's worth I think it's worth it. I think this is a week for reflection yeah. and uh, sharing. Uh, where we are a year on from the loss. Um, just quickly, some people come up in this part two of the interview. Patrick Clark uh, was a chef in New York City, died uh, tragically young of... Uh, I always thought he had died, I think it was reported as congestive heart failure at the time. Um, I met a relative of his at the Petard anniversary party the other day. I think mm-hmm. she's his cousin, and it turns out that is actually what was cause of death, but there was an underlying condition, which I never knew. Um, in any event, if you don't know that name, he was the original chef of Odeon. He was one of the few, what we would call celebrity chefs, who was African-American back in these days. One of the very, very Very few. few. But he was a huge person in New York City. Uh, he was at the Odeon. Uh, he was briefly at Tavern on the Green. Nobody lasts Oops. there very long. Um, he had a place called Metro on the Upper West Side. He was uh, uh, Odeon was the first Keith McNally project, right. which he did with his brother Brian and and Lynn. Can you pronounce her last name? Wagon. I, I don't want to mispronounce her last name, Lynn. But uh, uh, Lynn was uh, Lynn Keith, <laughs> Keith McNally's now ex-wife. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they also did Cafe. Luxembourg, and that Patrick was the chef there for a while. So he comes up at one point. That's who he is. Right. Anne Rosenzweig came up. She is a famously reclusive, still lives in New York, used to have a restaurant called Arcadia, had a restaurant called The Lobster Club. There was just an article about her recently, a pretty big profile. I forget where it ran. Um, but she famously doesn't give many interviews. I actually could not get an interview with her for my book. Uh-huh. I tried through multiple intermediaries. 
no no response. That's fine. She doesn't owe me an interview. But that's who Ann Rosenzweig is for people who won't know that name, which actually is probably a lot of you listeners. But she was huge in New York City and in the what 80s. Were the, what were the years that she would have been huge? I mean, huge was, I, would, I can't say exactly, but mid-80s to early 90s. You know, she she was actually at 21 at one point at the 21 Club, a right. woman chef at one yeah. of the most like macho, moneyed restaurants in New York. Anne was a big deal. Right. Um, and then once again, a name that comes up a lot, John Louis Paladin. Right. I remember him. If you don't know who that is, you need, just go look him up. It's too much yeah. for me to say, but I will say this is maybe the fourth interview where somebody has spoken in absolutely reverential yeah, terms. I remember that guy. But he was the chef at Jean-Louis at the Watergate, briefly at a place called yeah. the Time Hotel yeah. in New York, uh, died of lung cancer. He was a human chimney with the smoking, um, <laughs> but just a larger-than-life figure who Tony talks about here. Anyway, I just wanted to mention those things to orient you all. And also, um, I want to say when we get to the end, you mentioned earlier, Julia, this was a print interview. This is really the difference between podcasting, which yeah. even this conversation is in some way a performance, or you're trying to speak in a way that makes it yeah. listenable. You're trying to be emphatic and yep. project. This interview ends so abruptly, <laughs> which I don't mean that he ran off. We actually ended up sitting and, and, and gossiping for an hour. Right. But what I, I meant was... It just, I got what I needed. I asked my yeah. last question, and then it just kind of ends. I mean, it's okay, very, we're done. Click. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, cool. And then it ends. So just to prepare everybody for that. Um, and uh, that's it. I think that's it. All right, guys. Uh, with that, here you go. Part two of my interview with Anthony Bourdain from April 2014. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. We just had this talk about kind of what I'm writing about and this mm -hmm. time I'm writing and people starting to cook. When I just say all that to you, what personally, what just comes to mind for you about your own sort of beginnings of your own interest, your interest in food? I like to say I fell into the business for all the wrong reasons. I fell in because I was rootless. Uh, I didn't believe in anything. Uh, I didn't really have any... Uh, solid aspirations or ambitions that I actually believed in or had any, had any convictions in. I was disillusioned. Uh, there was no club I wanted to be a member of. Um, I was a very... I, I, I was pressed into a dishwashing job and I, I saw for the first time in my life a group of people whose respect I wanted. And at the end of a good shift, a busy shift, if I'd done a good job, I respected myself. I went home for the first time in my life respecting myself and craving the respect of other people. That was a first for me. So it began with that long before the food itself became a factor. That, that while it may have, while my early childhood experiences and my upbringing, which was relatively Food did play a part, I guess a larger part than that, than it did with, with most of my peers of the 60s. Uh, that resonated later. Yeah. But I came to that point a little down the road. I yeah. wanted to be part of that group. I wanted to be part of that society. I wanted to be a... 
acknowledged and respected within that community. You first went to a kitchen at age? 17. 17. And at that time, if you were going to describe it, um, what the, pro the profession was thought of like? De I mean, degraded. I mean, we were... We're not even the backstairs help. We were people, you, you, you don't mind looking at the backstairs help. We were the last people in the world anyone wanted to see or acknowledge. Yeah. We were, uh, the people I worked with were, were uh, really marginal. I mean, they worked as uh, chefs and cooks when they could, and when they couldn't, they do other work. It, right. it was all the same to them. Yeah. Roofing, house painting. Shucking scallops at the scallop plant mm -hmm. uh, didn't matter. There was nobody there for quite some time. There was nobody there yeah. who was passionate about food. Yeah, and and it was very much an environment, as I quickly found out. Whereas if you if you were passionate about food, you 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 would be spanked for it. I mean, for many years after that point, and in toll. Maybe the 90s. It, it, if, if you were generally punished for your best efforts, if you learned about food and you learned about the history of the things that you loved and how they were prepared best yeah. and how the masters did it, yeah. in this country you were punished for that. Year in, year out. I mean, we just saw chef together. Yeah. But look, you know, it, it's it's a sort of a romantic comedy, but and we're a little bit past that point as far as beef cheeks and you know you can sell beef cheeks now and you right. can sell kidneys, but I mean, try to serve a properly cooked piece of fish right. in uh, nineteen. 78 or 80, you were going to get fucking spanked for it 50% out of the time. Serve fish on the bone. You know, you're mad. You make people upset. You were the last person in the world that the customer wanted to see. And if they did see you, they wanted you to go, you know, pop. Oh, yes, what would Monsieur Madame like? Right. And then they told you. Yeah. They don't want to know what you know. Yeah. They could care less. The shortcut to heartbreak was to actually to care about your food and invest your 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 own personal history, your own likes and dislikes, your own experience and training to invest that in the food that you were selling to customers. Yeah. It was a shortcut to heartbreak. Yeah. When you uh, when you start becoming aware of you know talked about this episode of uh, your show when we sat down. When did you start becoming aware of Bocuse and, and start, reading, start reading books? I assume you probably read The Great Chefs of France, the book that everyone talks about. Look, as a pretentious little shit, you know, uh, you know, having recently come off the deep fryer and having been to France a few times uh, and looking at uh, Culinary Institute as an option, you know, these are the sort of books I bought and gaped at. Mm -hmm. Um, so we all know who Bakuz was. He was. Did we know his? You know, I didn't. It's a lazy and easy thing for me to say. I knew of Bakuz. Others of my age were doing everything they could to actually work for him or someone like him. You know, those are the untouchable ideals. Right. It was unthinkable that any yeah. of us would ever work for him. Back, I mean, back in 80, 
I mean, incre- there were, you know, there were people. Uh, you know, when I was working in like 1980, 82 uh, in Soho, I, I talk about how primitive the food was and, and what we were doing and how we thought we were hot shit. But the fact is, right under our noses, not far away, you know, Chanterelle was open. Mm-hmm. Look how far ahead they were. There were people who went to Europe and staged. Yeah. I just didn't know. So in a lot of ways, you're asking the wrong guy. So you were I really was, aware of, like, uh, we wear the quilting I the could. Time? I was aware of it, but look, by the time I was really fully cognizant of my business, yeah. it was already too late. I'd already thrown my lot in with the party boys, you know? I, I could have and should have been aware of Quilted Giraffe or Chanterelle. I could have and should have been knocking on their door. Um, I didn't. I was too comfortable with my crew of knuckleheads, uh, my own sort of network of people with priorities like mine. We thought we were geniuses. We thought we knew how to cook. We thought we had something to say and that it would not in any way interfere with our rigorous schedule of getting fucked up and staying out all night. Um, it just didn't occur to me. It's amazing to me to hear someone say that, that you could be cooking in, in Soho in New York and not have a greater... It is a measure, a it is a measure of, of both our self, self our, our just how far we were up our own asses, how insular... I mean, you know, we didn't get... You know, remember, cooks and chess back then, you couldn't afford to eat a chanterelle. Sure. Well, no, it's outrageous to even think about it. Yeah. I didn't have a jacket. Yeah. Um, but no, we were... There were those who did know and did seek those things out. Unfortunately, I just wasn't one of them. So did you? It was not my world. It was not my milieu. So did you not? So you didn't know? So there are these young guys at this time. You're talking early '80s. These guys were working at the Cobas. And women, uh, you know, Anne Rosenzweig, uh, for instance, Leslie Revson. I mean, these people were out there kicking ass and naked names early. Yeah. You know, I, I slowly and dimly became aware of them. I guess. Largely because it was a, it was noticeable that like there were chefs whose names would appear in the paper and were known. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was sort of a surprise. What was the um, socially at that time? You work in a restaurant. You mostly hang with the people from your restaurant. I didn't know anyone other who were. I didn't know anyone who wasn't a cook or a restaurant employee. But, I mean, there wasn't... My understanding from other people, and I'd just love to know what your take is, you know, I'd say... Because, you know, years later, 10 years after what we're talking about right now, and a little earlier than that was the thing that um, Palmer and the uh, Chef's Cuisineers and then Blue Ribbon happens. Right. And there become these, like, hubs. I just, but you, know, you ask people from the early 80s, who'd you hang with? And it tend, there did seem to be a lot of cross-pollination. I wasn't... First of all, I wasn't in that league. Um... Secondly, look, I'd go to work, I'd hang with my crew, you know, we'd work together, then we'd go out, maybe meet up with other cooks like us, musicians, some musicians, because we had the same hours. Yeah. It was drugs and alcohol. Drugs, alcohol, and, you know, I only slept with people within the industry, I only hung out with people within the industry. Uh, I had no clue really until you know I wrote a novel uh, Bobby Gold Stories which is very much sort of a reflection of 
It's about a bouncer who's starting to wonder what it would be like if he, what the white picket fence world would be like. Mm-hmm. You know, at age, I guess by age 38, 40, I was starting to wonder what kind of lives my customers went home to. Up until that point, I never wondered about these things. I didn't know anything about, I knew that if there were 100 customers, that 40 of them would go for the salmon. Given a choice between salmon and chicken, 40 would go for the salmon, 60 for the chicken. Mm -hmm. I knew their eating and drinking habits pretty well. Yeah. I knew nothing about what their lives might be like. I was aware of my own child, that I knew that people had backyards, that they grilled in those backyards if they had one. Uh, Parenting, uh, weekends, uh, going out to dinner with people who weren't other cooks. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any understanding of any of those things. I, I, I not only had no s- sympathy, I had actual contempt. I think you see that in Kitch Confidential. My, my contempt for Emeril, who of course I didn't know, my contempt for the customers because I didn't know them at all. I couldn't imagine what their lives were like other than that they were an annoyance to me uh, in, a se- in a way. Um, as I reached the end, near the end of my 30s, I was starting to wonder, what, what must it be like to uh, have a yard, uh, to own, to have health insurance, to own a right. car, to drive places, right. uh, to buy furniture, uh, to have a child. My God, what what about this one? To go to the beach with a child and walk into the waves. Right. To look into the, a child's face who, who, for whom you the sun and the moon. All of these were completely alien feelings. Um, Do you think that was common to people you were friends with and worked with? I, I don't know. Look, I'm, a, I'm a, of another time. Um, and I am well known for things other than my cooking. Mm-hmm. So all of my friends who I talk about these things with were much more successful and are much more successful chefs. And in order to be that, I think guys like Mario and Jose sure. and Eric, they, they grew up, I mean, they, they figured out a way to make lives for themselves within the industry way earlier than me. I, I didn't really, you know, grow up leave my post-adolescence even yeah. until I was middle-aged. I mean, I was... Uh, for me, the restaurant industry allowed me to stay a child for uh, most of my life. Yeah. Did you... Um... I mean, as long as I could cook well or well enough yeah. and do the job, as long as I could... Look... As long as you can cook 300 orders of eggs Benedict yeah. between 12 o'clock and 4 o'clock, you know what? There's going to be work for you in this business. But how do you reconcile what you're saying with this like reverence for somebody like you know Paul Bocuse and these other? Um, 
no, like look, you we had, all, you had we, all we were actually stupid enough and high enough and full of ourselves enough to think that we were that we would someday. I don't think we just didn't understand the cost of being Paul because we didn't understand. We didn't know that he started with La Mer Brasier, that he, right. you know, where he came from or right. what or the hours he put in. We, we, we didn't know those things. Yeah, we 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 thought that we would somehow find ourselves, if not him at least able to get away with something like that. I mean, right. we, just, we were clueless. When people started to get famous in this t- around this time... You know, that's me. I'm going to be very clear. When I'm talking about we, I'm not talking about me and my friends. I'm not talking about people of my generation because there were smart people no, out there who fucking understood you had to put in your time. Yeah. I didn't understand. When you... Um, well, first of all, I should back up. When you decide you want to do this for a living, what was your family's reaction back then? Look, uh, they weren't thrilled. Uh, I, but I, I think at that point, I don't know that they were disappointed. I was a problem kid. I didn't. I seemingly had no particular ambition to do anything. I hated everything. The fact that I had a job and seemed excited about something, yeah. and that there was some order, some structure, some 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 uh, discipline in my life. Uh, probably came as uh, something of a relief. When uh, a lot of people I've spoken to, um, not just for the book, but in other interviews, it comes up all the time. There seems to be, and I don't want to, not for everyone, but it seems to be a majority of people in cooking that I've spoken to, are om- they're almost metabolically um, incompatible with formal education, with sitting still in a classroom, with well, testing, with some aspect of it, for various reasons. First of all, traditionally, you know, in France you'll find, particularly uh, when you talk to chefs with brothers, uh, the smarter brother gets sent to university. The less smart one, the slower one, gets sent off to Uncle uh, Uncle Henri to learn the family business. They can't, you know, someone's got to make money around here. Right. You know, we're spending all of our money on the smart one. You, you're going to start earning a living. We can't right. carry you. So there's a long tradition of, like, something less than the best and the brightest ending up in the business. Yeah. But it's more than that. It's the... Uh, I know a lot of chefs who are dyslexic. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Uh, a lot of chefs who tell me I a lot, because I heard this from people who read Kish Confidential that they haven't read another book since they were since high school. Uh, I think a, a lot of people who are uncomfortable in their verbal comprehension skills, reading comprehension, who felt awkward speaking, um, who sent or who sensed that. Who, had, who struggled with language. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a business that's non-verbal, that's sensual, that you can express yourself in a, in a, without using language. You, reading skills not needed, right. really. Uh, you can get around it. Also, I think there are a lot of people who just sense to themselves a, genuine, a, a general discomfort Polite society. I mean, working in an office, uh, uh, interacting with others in a larger situation, interacting with a room full of equals. Awkward, difficult. Uh, you know, 
you don't get the high school. You don't get the quarterback, the high school quarterback, in the kitchen that much. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're people who are adrift at odds, who feel look shy people. Um, some of your biggest shouters are, are very shy, actually very shy, um, insecure, uh, tenuous people yeah. outside of the kitchen. Right. Um, so I think it's that. Um, but a lot of these people also, I, I think, I'm sure you'd agree with this, are, they're highly intelligent people. Oh, yeah. They're street smart. Like, it's, you know. Super street smart. They, a lot of them become often, very good business people. Often get very good at spoken word, at, at telling stories, but, but in a patois. Yeah. Not in a way that they would feel comfortable uh, writing a school paper in. Right. I mean, a lot of the most absolutely devastating. I mean, uh, Gordon Ramsay can be pretty fucking poetic, you know, especially back in the day yeah or uh, a better example Mark up your wife sure but I mean he's, he's, he's dyslexic his struggles with uh, really struggles with, with, with writing a paragraph yes. would be very very difficult um I'm sorry, your question again was... Uh, I was saying, it was, it was, I guess, a follow-up. I they're smart. They have these issues, but they're actually very highly intelligent. Uh, and able to multitask. Yeah. Uh, uh, look, in order to be a chef, which again means chief or leader, you have to be able to multitask. You only have to handle pressure. And you have to be able to look a wide variety of people in the eye and, and really... Put yourself right into them in a heart and soul. You have to understand. You have to communicate. You yeah. have to somehow motivate people to do a very difficult thing every day. Yeah. That is, you're managing people. I think most chefs would become would be very good CIA case officers, uh, for instance. Uh, either. You know, some would be good uh, military leaders. Other would, others would be probably better to be a CIA case officer, trying to convince some somebody to, you know, do something they never would have thought of doing. Yes. And and, and do it every day and right. stay motivated. Right. Um, you just mentioned Marco Pierre White a minute ago. When I first saw this project, you tweeted me mm-hmm. and said, "Are you going to do Marco Pierre White?" And I said, I wrote back and said, "My book's focused on the U.S." And you said, "We all want to. We all wanted to." be him. What did you mean by that? Because I, I will, um, he, he has not come up that much with guys, strangely. Um, well, it's of a certain generation, but I mean, he's a hero to, I'm surprised to, to, to hear that. Most chefs, it's really funny, most chefs I know, start talking about Marco, they get all like, no, 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 you know, I never, he was never a role model to me. Oh, his cooking, this, that, the other thing. Young cooks, still, young cooks, anyone who's seen, now, some, still some chefs, they, like, they know what, so, yeah, uh, yeah, some chefs actually get really pissy about it, really pissy, um, just refuse to accept Marco's importance, I just want to deny it, um, but what was it for you? He looked like chefs I knew. He looked like us. He was the first chef who wasn't a fat French guy, a well-fed French guy. He was an English guy with long, scraggly hair, rings under his eyes, gaunt cheeks, and smoked. And smoked in his fucking cookbook. And and then you turn the page, and there was this incredible, gorgeous food. Right. Uh, that made an impression. Wow, that guy is capable of that. 
What does that mean for me? Does that, that mean, might mean that I'm I'm capable of something? Right. Plus, he just looks so fucking cool. Yeah. And, you know, he's you know he's a very handsome. You know, they go. You know, you go on about the rock and roll good looks, but the fact is, he was the first rock and roll chef. Yeah. And we've been all listening to rock and roll. It had been a rock and roll profession for a long time without ever any public expression of that ethic. I mean, that was our secret that we listened to rock and roll in the kitchen was our thing. No one knew that. The whole, you say the, whole, the whole gimmick, I mean, meaning we literally all liked rock and roll and listened to rock and roll in the kitchen and, and essentially lived like we were Motley Crue when we weren't working and sometimes when we were working. Right. Uh, which is why a lot of us were in the business. You, you, yeah. you could get fucked and drunk and, and treated like you were a rock and roll star without being famous or even playing guitar. But the point is... What we were doing in the kitchen was not the image that we projected. The dining room was supposed to think that we were all listening to classical music in there right. and that we were all French guys. Right. Here was the first acknowledgement that what's happening in a kitchen is what we know it to be rather right. than what we assume everybody wants it to be, which right. is what we're all pretending, you know? And we'd all pretend. You'd see chefs transform. They walk out, you know, they, you know, cornstarch in the balls out through the kitchen doors, you know, suddenly it's the continental accent. It's like right. those old school maitre d's, you know? You ask them, you know, well, what, uh, what country, you know, they speak French, they speak Italian yeah. perfectly, and they'll be either of those things depending on what restaurant they're working at. And you yeah. ask them, where are you from? From Dimitri, I am from Europe. <laughs> you know, we all right. we had no template, we had no role model, we had nobody other than these French dudes. Yeah. And here was a guy who, like, clearly, wow, you know. Yeah. And look, he's right in right the cookbook. Yeah. There's yeah. his food. There, there's him. Yeah. When you, uh, do you have any insight? What's your own? thought or thoughts about why so many young Americans start gravitating toward this profession in the mid-late 70s. In the mid-late 70s? Did they? Nah, that wasn't well, that relatively early. relatively speaking. Not a clue. Why? I don't know. I mean, I know why they're doing it now. Oh, sure. But in the 70s? Well, maybe, I th maybe uh, look, I just have to guess. Uh, people who were disenchanted with... Uh, we learned what to become disenchanted with in the 60s, mm -hmm. which was everything. And all the shit that was supposed to offer us hope in the 70s wasn't there. Mm -hmm. There was nothing. It was all bullshit. You know? You could live a, you know, again, you know, it offered a rock and roll lifestyle where you go home feeling proud of yourself because you worked. You did, at the end of the day, you did honest fucking work. Right. With your back and your hands and all of your senses. And there was a creative aspect to it. Yeah. You got to build a house. You got to make it yours a little bit. Right. Uh, and you got to do all of these things that, uh, that we thought everybody wants to do. Right. When did people start coming on, you know, you mentioned before you weren't aware of Fontrell or not really focused. When do you start focusing on places like that? On where? On, on, on restaurants that mattered at the time. Late, really late. For me, I mean, pathetically late. Like post-92? No, or I mean sometime in the, I guess sometime in the late 80s. I mean, I started really looking around at that first wave of, you know, Waxman and, uh, uh, Rosenzweig, Patrick Clark. Uh, Who 
really stand out, who really stood out for you? Like who resonated with you at the time? Paladin. Amazing. Why? I found myself through some completely, for some completely bullshit reason, I somehow found myself, I found myself at the D'Artagnan 10th year anniversary party. Yeah. After which I got swept up in a big crew. I was fucking nobody. I was a chef of the supper club at the time. This was in D.C.? No, in New York. Oh, in New York. And, uh. I got swept up in a, with a bunch of other chefs. We all went to Brasserie in the middle of the night. And I found myself sitting next to Paladin. And just uh, he talked to me the whole night. Why me? I don't know. That's, a, I guess, a measure of what, by all, what I've since learned is very much what was in his character. And I remember his hands, how incredibly rough they were. I mean, this is a guy who fucking worked his whole life. And how passionate he was about food. And what an interesting, how just so... F- Different a creature he was than the people I I'd known in the business. What do you remember from that interaction? That I was in the presence of a genius. You could tell just sitting there. How so? His posture, the way he talked, yeah. uh, the passion, uh, and and just his knowledge was yeah. you know terrifying. Yeah. You know, I want to talk species of mushrooms. I mean, you whatever. Talk about stuff like this at that Every, dinner. Everything. You know, I interviewed uh, Keller for the book, and I asked him if um, I asked him how much of an influence Trotter had been on his ambitions. You know, the kind of European-style restaurant, the tasty menu, and, and he said, "You know, Andrew, if you look backwards, I could see why that would make sense." He said, "But for me, it was Jean Louis." Yeah, I think it's for. for he said, "Just the sheer ambition of it." The most uh, look, just the supply chain. I mean, all of these companies that wouldn't exist without him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the guy would, like, party all night and then go driving all over the Northeast looking for sources for food. Uh, he single-handedly, you know, created the, the environment and inspired and changed every chef he ever worked with. Right. Um, but I, I think, you know, there were a number of chefs who, by virtue of their confidence and uh, alone, the way they presented themselves, uh, who I brushed up against, really impressed me. Um, Patrick Clark was one. What do you remember about him? You ate at Odeon? Yeah, and uh, worked with him, uh, auditioned for a gig at one of his restaurants, uh, which I didn't get. What, Metro? And, uh, no, the Upper West Side, Luxembourg. He was okay. in Luxembourg. Yeah. And he worked at my Supper Club one night uh, for a special event. He was convinced of his own self-importance, of his own importance. He was convinced that he was really, really good, and he sold that, and that impressed me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think, uh, I didn't know a lot of people who were that certain of their place in the world. Yeah. Um, This guy was confident in, in, in his ability and his the treatment that he deserved in return. Did you experience Jonathan that way? Uh, no, I didn't get to know Jonathan until much, oh, much later. Much I was later. certainly aware of him. Yeah. What else? You mentioned Rosen's wife. Did you ever uh, I never ate her food. I, no, I did, actually. Uh, I a bunch of other chefs. A chef friend took over Vanessa right after she left. I was working in the same company. Now, this was back in... 80s, and I'll never forget it. Now, back then, you know, you were a woman chef. Uh, you, you were not surrounded by sisters. Uh, I 
remember walking in that restaurant and the staff, what was left, were all hardcore Mexican dudes, like the fucking mountains, not guys used to being told what to do by a woman. Yeah. They were like, Anne says this, Anne did it this way, Anne this, Anne that. They were fucking absolutely worshipful and respectful of her work. I made a real impression on her. Hmm. And of course, you know, how early she was there. Yeah. And how, you know, that must have been tough. Yeah. Kicking ass and taking names back in the day. Yeah. The whole drug element of life in this business in New York at that time. Yeah. And I just love to talk about it for a minute. I always feel like this is a misunderstood thing. I feel like the... And I'm sure there are people who just did it because they like doing it or they had a problem. Um, it seems to me like the the the, the hours, the pressure, um, the, the the logistics almost of that of the profession are almost tailor made to lead to this. When you when you finish a day, look, I don't know. This is people have made comments along those lines to me. From what I've seen. Those days are largely over. The culture I grew up in, until the latter part of my career, mm-hmm. until early 90s, if you wanted to, you know, chef, I'm going to go smoke a joint in a walk and that's cool. Chef, I got a package. Or I got a package coming in 15 minutes, want a bump. Now, you know, hey, chef, I got some coke coming. You're fucking fire. You're a liability. And in fact, if chef hears that you're, as soon as you finish work, you're going out to, to stay up all night snorting coke, he's thinking about, um, you know, first time you're late, first time something goes missing in the changing room. Yeah. You're a liability now. You're, you're going to bring the side down. Yeah. We didn't really have to worry about bringing the side down so much. And a lot of us were in the business from the get-go, remember, to get high, to, 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 to be in a world where there were always somebody with a package. There were always girls who liked somebody with a package. Mm-hmm. You could always smoke a joint with your buddies in the fucking locker room, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the walk-in. Um, was that the world you guys? Was that the world that you guys inherited, or was that something that start, started to happen? I, it's a world I walked into. It was that way when you got there. And I remember in the '70s, certainly, you know, everybody thought cocaine was fine. It wasn't yeah. addicting. It wasn't going to hurt you. It made you smart. It woke you up. You'd had a couple of cocktails to bring you around. So there were plenty of really back then. There were plenty of really super talented chefs, and yeah. we know a bunch of them who, got, who, got, who had cocaine problems. Yeah. But everybody knows better now. Right. I don't think there's anybody out there running multi-unit quality restaurant organization that you or I would care to eat at any one of those restaurants who's got a Coke problem. Right. You can't. Right. We well know that. Right. And by a Coke problem, I mean not only they're not doing Coke regularly or even even much, uh, if at all, but they're not accepting cocaine use in their kitchen. It's certainly not you're, not. you're not smoking a joint. You're not smoking a cigarette. Yeah. There are a lot of kitchens now. They don't even want smokers. Sure. It's different. A whole different world. A whole different world. Those are all open kitchens. Right. But, right. but but the culture's changed. With with that change in prestige. Yeah. And interest. Behavior had to shape up, and it did. Yeah. Um, what about from the customer side back in those days? Drugs? Yeah. 
I mean, I've heard stories from like. Well, I mean, look, we know I what mean, they Jerry did. Jerry Crutcher told me stories from the Gotham. We know what they did in the bathroom because we'd see the bathrooms at the end of the night. Right. Uh, they, you know, they'd fuck on the sink. They'd do rails off every horizontal surface. Right. I don't. I wouldn't know. I don't know what they get up to out there, other than what they do to the bathroom. Well, Chester getting famous. You know, Jeremiah had the big Doers ad campaign. Right. And... Do you remember when that first started to register for you? The civilian started, you know, wanted to fuck the chef. That was a first, or that was new. Just by virtue of the fact that you cooked. Um, you made a connection between. And you see the, the cover. You see the coverage. In the, in the people on the cover of New York Magazine. Yeah, just the way people talked about chefs was different. Suddenly they were sexy. Yeah. No one ever said that before. I mean, we knew we smelled bad. We were dirty, smelled bad. Right. And we're bad. Generally, the last person in the world you right. wanted to be in a relationship with. Yeah. How about um, being in New York? How much were you at the time aware of what was going? I mean, I guess in the mid late eighties, let's say, when these other things come on your radar. How much? Or what's going on elsewhere in the country? Not, at all. Not at all. I mean, I read Chippenies, the names. Star, Michaels. I read about stuff. it in food arts. That was it. That was it. Zero. I mean, my. I'd say that hasn't. Look, uh, if you, it, it, unless you're at a, the level, if you're a hardworking cook in a, in a kitchen right now, unless you're making enough money that you can take a few weeks off here or there and eat around the country, as a, a growing number, very large number of people have. You don't know what's going on in these places. You know your kitchen. You yeah. know the kitchens you worked in, and maybe a few friends' kitchens. Yeah. You don't have. You know. You're not doing wine tours of Napa Valley, chances are. No, but I just mean, like, I think... I wasn't aware at all. I mean, today, right, we're sitting here, but we know who Sean Brock is. I mean, there's such a... Well, I do, but, you know, that's because I'm on TV. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I don't know. I think that's it's because, you know, I met Sean making a TV show in Charleston. Right. I went drinking with him without even knowing he was Sean Brock, actually. Yeah. We were doing a show, and it was like, hey, this local cook dude. Yeah. We've since become friends. But yeah. No, I didn't know. I didn't know. I was fucking clueless. I mean, not that I would have let you know that. If you had interviewed me in 95, I would have pretended to know all of these people, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, but, but I didn't. I hadn't been anywhere. I'd never been, I don't think I'd ever been to San Francisco. I, I hadn't been anywhere. Yeah. Until 2000, to like 2000, 2001. Is that right? Right after the book? I'd been to France. I'd been to, as a kid, I'd been to uh, the Caribbean. That was it. I'd never owned a car. Yeah. When the whole blue ribbon thing started, you, were you part of that scene or not? So uh, not part of the scene. I mean, I went, but I didn't know anyone there. I mean, nobody was inviting me to their table. Uh, I knew Scott Bryan. Um, so, how'd you guys meet? Uh, John Tizar, uh introduced us because okay. they used to work together out on the island. They were yeah. all part of that. I think that I think they were all part of that Long Island mafia. Yeah. Uh, briefly. Uh, but I was introduced by Tizar to Scott Bryan and at various points look, me and my cooks loved Scott's food and wherever Scott was working we'd all run over there. Often we'd call him up order food. If our kitchens closed at the same time, we'd call him up order food and then like close down real quick and run over there and sit really? at the bar and eat. Yeah. 
we all really, really respected what he did. So I think, yeah, and uh, Scott uh, introduced me to, you know, young Mario, who was at Lupa at the t- sure. at, uh, at Poe at the time. Yeah. I wouldn't have met all these guys otherwise. Yeah. You know, Scott was somebody that other chefs knew and respected. Yeah. Whereas I was, a, you know, a, you know, I was a hacker. Yeah. Okay. That might be good for me. Cool. Thank you. Okay, so the slight silver lining to all that is I think he actually did meet Keith Richards, ultimately, who oh. was on his hit list of, yeah. That would have been I'm the, told they actually did meet eventually. Do you know where he hangs out? He hangs out in, Keith Richards? Keith Richards okay. is in um, Weston, Connecticut. What? A, yes. Okay. Look it up. He has a house there. And he, his sister, uh, his sister, or his wife's sister has a place, Luke's. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And I had no idea. Many, many, many people have run into him. He plays Chinese checkers at Luke's. Um, he's become an old English gentleman. Yep. As and, has and Mick Jagger. Until they get on stage. Happy to have photographs. I know so many people who have just hit up Keith yeah. for a photo <laughs> yeah. in front of the Chinese checkers board. Wow. Well, that's our show for this week. Julia, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Jeet Paul, thanks for helping me clean up the audio, uh, which I hope you were able to do something with the the, the, uh, the restaurant noise. I think it was worth it. Uh, everybody listening, you know, I don't know what it was like for you, for me, when I remember that I had this audio and listen, I can't watch Parts Unknown yet. I can't watch no, it. I haven't watched anything. I can't watch it. And when I heard his voice, yeah. that voice, yeah. he was blessed with a voice that was perfect for who he became. I don't think it gets talked about enough. You could not train someone to have a voice like that. It was so... It just summed up everything about his life. So just, him. It was so him. It was perfect. Yeah. I hope this was something that... I'll just say that you all got something from out there. I think most people who listen to this show are cooks or chefs or culinary students or people who are interested in that world. And nobody, I think... Brought it to life on the page, increased the appreciation for it, increased the appreciation just for the work. Mm. If you think back to what you just listened to, how much time did he spend talking about just the rigors of the life and also the glories of the life? It's what I love. The glories. The glories. It's what I... Do you miss those things? I do. I do. You do, right? It's always there. Yeah, there's yeah. there was a sense there there were things as a writer that you will never have that you had as a cook. Yeah, all right. I also have to thank a, a chef, Dave DeBerry, for letting us borrow the dining room of his cookery restaurant at the very last second, probably within moments of when I got you right before you went to bed. We right. got Dave right when he woke up. Yeah, and uh, that's it. So all of you out there in podcast land, thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this show, the best way to do that is simply to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or to follow our Instagram feed again, the handle is at Chef Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network.
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.